So a lot of people have been saying now for quite some time that we are living in what is called the post-Christian era. We're no longer in the Christian era. And what that basically means is that Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview of Americans, right? That Christianity is no longer the controlling narrative of our culture. And this is particularly true of the Bay Area, right? In the Bay Area, something like 80 to 90% of Bay Area people do not attend church on a regular basis. And when we take into account uh, the enormous ethnic diversity, the religious diversity, the socioeconomic diversity of the Bay Area, we are right back to first century Mediterranean world. We're right back to the original setting when the church first exploded onto the scene. And therefore, that makes the book of Acts incredibly relevant for us. It makes it incredibly relevant because the book of Acts is the story of how Christianity spread. And so when we look at the book of Acts, what do we see? How did the gospel advance? The gospel advanced wherever the disciples went and they preached the gospel and then they would plant churches. Planting churches is how we fulfill the Great Commission. If you look, if you look remember uh, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that word baptize is key because why? What does it tell us? It tells us that we are not only to share the gospel with people, but we're supposed to bring in people into the church, integrate them, because only in the church can we truly baptize. Only in the church can we truly disciple them. So uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to start a new series. We're going to look at the book of Acts, and specifically we're going to look at church planting in the book of Acts. And we're going to look at Paul's second missionary journey, uh, which is probably his most impactful, his most effective time. And uh, this week, we're going to look at the beginning of how the second missionary journey started. And then next week, we're going to look at the first church that Paul plants, the church in Philippi. Okay? So if you guys can turn to page four. Can we lower the mic just a little bit? If you guys can turn to page four in your bulletins, we're going to read from Acts starting chapter 15, and we're going to look at how this missionary journey began. And I'll read for you. And after, some, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was, sit, was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of the Lord. So the question that should come up in our minds is, why does Luke, who narrates this account, why does he include these particular details, right? I mean, of all the stories and of all the peoples that Luke could have mentioned, right, this story encompasses multiple weeks, why does he include only these three stories? The reason why Luke is doing this is because he is writing to the Christians of the time and he is encouraging the Christians to persevere in the task of church planting, right? He's trying to show us in these three stories lessons that we can draw, principles we can draw out of how God guides us when we plant churches, right? So that's incredibly relevant for us, right, as we plant Indelible Grace Church. And so let's look at the three lessons. Let's look at the three stories. They're conveniently organized in three paragraphs. So here is the outline. God advances the church. God advances the gospel. Number one, through a fight. Number two, through cultural adaptation. And then number three, through obstacles, okay? Through a fight, through the apostles adapting, and then through obstacles. All right, so point number one, through a fight. So the story starts out, and Paul goes to Barnabas, and he says, let's go on another trip. Let's go visit the churches that we had previously planted, and let's see how they're doing. Now, what had happened is, in Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned by the church in Antioch uh, to go and to be missionaries and plant these churches. And they went to Cyprus, and they went to Galatia, and they planted churches. It took them about two years. And then uh, this incredible controversy broke out. I don't want to go into it, right, because it would take up an enormous amount of time. But they basically have to go down to Jerusalem to sort of settle this controversy. And then afterwards, they go back to Antioch, and they're sort of ministering there. You know, you can sort of think of them as these incredible leaders in the church. They're sort of these senior pastors in the church in Antioch. And then after a while, Paul says, this would be three years after they initially set, it, they set out for the first missionary journey. Paul says to Barnabas, let's go on another trip. Let's go plant more churches. And at this point, Luke tells us in verse 39... There arose a sharp disagreement. A fight broke out. What was the fight about? Well, back in the first missionary journey, 
they took someone, they took with them someone named John, also called Mark. And this Mark is a pillar of the church. He, uh, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. But at this point in the story, he's a very young man. He's incredibly immature. And he goes with them on a trip. And according to Acts 13.13, 13, in the very middle of the mission trip, he chickens out. And he abandons Paul and Barnabas. He quits the missionary trip and he goes back home. And before we get too harsh with Mark, we really have to try to imagine it from his situation, okay? Imagine you're Mark. You're traveling in the ancient world. This was incredibly hard. You're constantly in new places. Um, It's incredibly uncomfortable. And on top of that, you're in constant danger. Because if you read the book of Acts, Paul and his companions are constantly being threatened. He's constantly being beaten with wooden rods. He's constantly being tortured in prison. And you know, for us, we read that and we're sort of, you know, from a distance. You know, it doesn't affect us. But this was real to Mark. This was his life. And so Mark says, hold up. This is not what I signed up for. And he bails. He quits. Flash forward three years. This is the second missionary journey. And Barnabas says to Paul, let's take Mark with us again. And Paul says, hold up. Are you kidding? No way. And a fight breaks out, right? A sharp disagreement. Now, the Greek word there is paraxemos, which is, an, which is a very strong word. We're not talking about like a gentlemanly disagreement. We're talking about a full-on, red-faced, screaming, shouting fight, right? Where they're just like at each other, right? Words were said that probably shouldn't have been said. And you know what probably made the fight even more intense? Is that they were both partially right. They were both right. Paul was right. We can't take someone who's going to flake on us. This mission is too important. It's too critical. And Barnabas was right. Paul, it's three years later. Mark is older now. He's more mature. Let's give him another chance. You know, let's give him another shot. But they couldn't resolve their conflict. And so they broke up. They couldn't work together. And the missionary team splits up and Paul takes Silas and he heads north to Galatia. And Barnabas takes Mark and he heads south to Cyprus. Does this sound familiar? What does this sound like? It sounds like a church split, right? It sounds like a church split. And we're wondering, why did Luke include this story at the very beginning of the second missionary journey? Is Luke trying to bum us out? Is he trying to depress us? Absolutely not. This story Luke included to encourage us. This is an incredible encouragement. And I'll tell you why for two reasons, okay? The first reason why this fight encourages us is because it reminds us of the gospel. What is the gospel? Is the gospel that Christians are simply better than other people? We're just more moral, right? We're just a cut above the rest. And therefore, God looks at us and he loves us and he approves of us. Good job. Absolutely not. That is not the gospel. That is moralism. And I am really sad to say that a lot of people believe in moralism. And that's why when they read this story, 
they're shocked. They're scandalized, right? What is Paul and Barnabas doing? I'm, I'm, I, I'm surprised. But don't you see that this story tells us the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is that we are more sinful, we are more broken than we can possibly imagine, but at the very same time, we are more loved and cherished by God than we could ever hope. This story shows us that Paul and Barnabas are sinners, just like you and me. Paul and Barnabas are these pillars of the early church. They're these great leaders, but they fall short. And that's just an incredible comfort and encouragement to us. You know why? Because in the end, that shows us that only God gets the glory. In the end, right, we read in Acts that incredible church growth, incredible numbers of people come in to believe the gospel, but in the end, Paul and Barnabas cannot say, it's because of me. We're just that righteous. We're just that virtuous. They can't. In the end, only God gets the credit. Only God gets the glory. And it makes Paul and Barnabas and it makes us depend on God all the more. We get to enjoy his provision, right? Because we're hopeless. We're sinful. And therefore, we should be crying out to God all the more in prayer, just depending on his mercy. Because on our own, we just can't do it. We can't cut it. Now, does this excuse our sins? Does this excuse our behavior? No, I'm not saying that. But it's an incredible comfort. The second way that the fight uh, is an encouragement to us is that this fight shows us once again that God works not in spite of our sins, but in and through our sins. Look at the story. Does Because of what happened, because of the fight, Paul and Barnabas are able to double the amount of work they could otherwise do, right? They split up, and therefore, they're able to plant twice as many churches. They're able to reach twice as many people, not in spite of the fight, but because of the fight. The fight is the reason why they were able to be more effective. And what does that show us? It shows us that God is sovereign. God is in control. That he's not surprised by our sins. He's not surprised by um, developments and setbacks. That God is behind the scene and he's orchestrating everything. Don't you see? Do you see any relevance for us? You know, in large part, Indelible Grace Church is the result of Christian leaders unable to get along with each other. And that is an incredible tragedy, and it's an incredible sadness, but I firmly believe this, that as a result, I think more people will be reached by the gospel. That as a result of Indelible Grace Church being planted, that people who have never heard the gospel or people who don't believe will come into the church and they will believe. Now, I'm not saying that I know what's going to happen. You know, our church plan can be an incredible success or it could be a complete disaster. But I believe either way, God will get the glory. God is in control. And either way, 
we have to depend on him. We have to cry out for his mercy because whether things go well or whether things go poorly, we need to lean on his power, lean on his control. Okay, so that's point number one. Let me, um, let me say this postscript because I want, I'm sure some of you are wondering, what happened in the end of the story, right? Was there a reconciliation? Did Paul and Barnabas and Mark, did they get along in the end? And the answer is yes. If you actually look at Paul's epistles, the, la- the latter epistles, he often mentions Mark and he says, Mark, oh Mark, he's such a friend. He's such a comfort to me. He's sitting right here in prison, you know, and he's ministering to me. So there was a reconciliation. Okay, so point number one, the gospel advances through a fight. And point number two, the gospel advances through cultural adaptation. And here we're going to the second paragraph. And if you look at verse one, it says that Paul went to the city of Lystra. Now in Lystra, he meets a young Christian named Timothy. And, you know, Timothy is sort of commended by all the Christians, and Paul recognizes immediately what a tremendous help Timothy would be to his ministry. And so he wants to take Timothy along, but there's a problem. What's the problem? It says there in verse 1 that Timothy's dad was Greek, but his mother was Jewish. Why was that a problem? Well, because Timothy's father was not a believer he refused to allow Timothy to be circumcised. What is circumcision? Circumcision, very quickly, is an identity marker for Jews. It's described in the book of Exodus, in fact. The foreskin of a baby boy would be cut off. And for Greeks, this was just ghastly, you know? This was like mutilating the body. And so his dad said, absolutely not. My young boy Timothy will never be circumcised. Why was this a problem? Because his mother was Jewish. And according to Jewish law and according to Jewish custom, he was Jewish. And it would have been an incredible scandal for a Jewish man not to be circumcised. It would have been an incredible source of distraction because Jewish people would have seen Timothy as a betrayer of his people, as a race traitor. And so in verse 3, Paul goes to Timothy and says, Timothy... I want you to be circumcised. Now, some of you might be saying, hold on, what's going on? Uh, What about Galatians, right? We studied Galatians. You guys remember in Galatians, what was the controversy? There were some people going around the church saying, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. And Paul puts his foot down in Galatians and says, absolutely not. When it comes to salvation, circumcision has no value, no merit. And in fact, um, there's a point in Acts where Titus, who is 100% Greek, he's, pre- he's actually Roman, he's pressured to be circumcised, and Paul says, absolutely not, no way. Why does Paul say to Timothy, be circumcised? And the reason why is because Timothy was Jewish. And to other Jews, it would have been an incredible source of distraction Um, They would have seen him as this kind of traitor. And so Paul says, it doesn't compromise the gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. So I want you to be circumcised. And what's the principle here? What's the lesson that we can draw? Paul shows us that we need to do everything that we can to accommodate, to adapt to the culture of non-Christians. 
he, uh, there's this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a great passage. Paul says, I do everything that I can in order that some people might be saved. When I'm with Jews, I'm hanging, with, hanging out with Jews. I eat Jewish food. I act Jewish. But when I'm with my Greek friends, you know, I talk in their language. I relate to them in their culture. Because in any way possible, I'm trying to reach them. I'm trying to tell them the gospel. What's the practical application here for us? It means that we don't put unnecessary obstacles for people to hear the gospel, right? This is why, by the way, you know, every church does it a little, little bit differently, but this is why we sing contemporary songs. This is why uh, we dress casually, because in everything, we're trying to make our visitors feel comfortable. This is why I've instructed the presiders that at every element in the worship service, explain, right? Explain it to people so that it's not some sort of weird series of rituals, right? It means that we don't expect visitors and our non-Christian friends to act like us, talk like us. It means that we embrace them, we accept them as they are so they can hear the gospel. And that means we have, it has to come up, we have to come out of our comfort zones. It's a little bit de- uh, destabilizing for us, right? It's a, maybe even painful for us to have this kind of disruption. But you know what? Look at the example of Timothy. Timothy, as a grown man, had to undergo circumcision. And that was an excruciatingly painful experience. He would have had to convalesce for several weeks while he healed. Why did he go through that kind of pain? Because he wanted people to hear the gospel. He wanted people to know Jesus Christ. All right, point number three. Um, The gospel advances through obstacles. Now, uh, Luke, in paragraph 3, throws out all these geographic markers, right? And, you know, I think we're tempted as modern readers to sort of like gloss over those details, right? It's sort of like these meaningless details. What does that have anything to do with the story? It has everything to do with the story. It has everything to do with what um, Paul is trying to, I mean, what Luke is trying to tell us. So um, it's a little bit unusual, but I'm going to put up a map so we can sort of follow along and so we can see what's going on. And I have a pointer here. Let's see if it works. Ah, here we are. Okay, so according to the story, Paul starts out right here. This is Lystra, right? And he goes up to the province of Phrygia. But in verse 6, it says that the Holy Spirit prohibited him forbid him from preaching the gospel. Now, we're not sure exactly how that happened, but we basically know that the Holy Spirit told Paul, I don't want you to plant churches here. This is not your destination. So Paul says, okay, all right. So he heads up north, and he tries to go into the province of Bithynia. But in verse 7, it says, once again, the Holy Spirit blocked Paul from going. We're not sure how this happened, but the Holy Spirit blocked him. This is not where I want you to plant churches. So Paul says, okay, so he goes to the province of Asia, he goes through the province of Mycenae, and he goes all the way down to the coastal city of Troas. And finally, in the city of Troas, Paul receives a vision, go to Macedonia, and go plant a church in the city of Philippi. So Macedonia is all the way across the ocean right here, and here's the city of Philippi. Now the thing is that 
this, the whole time Paul's traveling this distance, it would have been an incredible, um, an incredible frustration, right? Wherever Paul went, he was constantly being blocked. He was constantly being frustrated, lead, being led up dead ends. You know, it's almost like a wild goose chase. He's like tra- traipsing around all of uh, the Mediterranean world. And I'm sure this must have come up in Paul's mind. God, if you wanted me to go to Philippi, if that was my ultimate destination, why didn't you just tell me in the first place? Because what Paul could have done is he could have gone from Lystra and he could have gone south and then caught a boat and gone by sea to Philippi. Because travel in the ancient world by ocean was about 10 times faster than travel on foot by land. If Paul had known from Lystra to head to Philippi, it would have taken him just maybe three to four days travel. But by land, this was about 300 miles. And if he was just booking it, if he was, if he was just like speed walking the whole way, it would have taken him three weeks. But we know that he was probably, you know, was being led up dead ends. He was constantly going um, on uh, these, uh, you know, routes that didn't end up being true. So it probably took him four to five weeks of hard travel. We can take the map down now. This was four to five weeks of hard travel. Remember in the ancient world, um, travel, there was no hotels. Food was hard to come by. And when you could find food, it was inedible, disgusting, barely digestible. Everything was dirty. The people were unfriendly. Even though the roads were relatively safe because of the Romans, (coughs) they were constantly in danger of bandits, constantly in danger of thugs. I remember um, when I was a college student, I went on a short-term mission trip to India. We were there for about a month, and the last two weeks, the mission leader said, "Um, I have a treat for you guys. We're going to travel around India. We're going to see how the people live, but we're going to do it authentic-like. You know, we're going to do it the way the native people travel. We're not going to enjoy any modern luxuries like hotels or stuff like that. So we went by train, and this train was truly heinous, right? It was dirty. It was really disgusting. I mean, when you wanted to go to the bathroom, you sort of go into this little closet, and you sort of lift up this lid, and then it was like the train tracks underneath, you know? And then um, I remember when we wanted to sleep, uh, the train was just so crowded. There were no beds. So I literally would sleep like standing up, you know? And the, the weather was hot and humid. We, we didn't shower the whole time. It was just so disgusting. You know, we wore like virtually the same clothes every day. And I remember at the end of that trip, uh, we would take, a, we, we, we finally went to a hotel. And we, each took a, we each took turns taking a shower. And when I took a shower, the water was literally black. You know, it was, I honestly will say this, the most miserable time of my life. Two weeks of traveling. Now imagine this, okay? Paul and Timothy and Silas are traveling for four to five weeks, just absolute suffering, agony as they're traveling, right? By land. Why is God doing this? Why this terrible inefficiency? I have a real shocker of an answer for you. Honestly, God is not interested in efficiency. 
God is interested in your growing in grace. God is interested in our growing in faith and our depending upon him more and more. Um, Just to share a personal story, uh, when I was in college, shortly after I came back from the mission trip, I told God, I committed myself that I was going to be a pastor. And I remember thinking that, you know, I have this noble desire. It's not for me. You know, I'm doing this for God. I'm serving God. And so I thought that, you know, doors would open. Um, everything would just go smoothly, you know, because I want to be a pastor. I, it's not for me. It's for God. And so, uh, I don't know, for some reason, I knew seminary costs money, but I, knew, I thought for some reason that... Uh, Doors would open, I would go to seminary, somehow it would all happen, it would all work out, and then I would go and I would find a church. I graduate from college, and to my absolute shock, I realized no one was going to pay for seminary. I had to go get a job. And mind you, the whole time I thought I was preparing to be a pastor. So I, I didn't get any practical job skills, uh, I never had an internship. To that point, I had never held a real job. So I went out there looking for a job, and it was incredibly hard for me because, you know, my resume was basically like ministry activities. And I finally found a job as a Walgreens manager. And uh, I, I don't want to say anything bad about being a Walgreens manager, but for me, it was real, it was just sheer agony. And I remember as I was working there, I thought, okay, I, I get it, God. You're trying to humble me, and you're trying to prepare me. You're trying to give me real-world experience. I get it. It's probably going to be about a year, right? And then I'm going to go to seminary. It took me three years, three years of working before I finally went to seminary. And then when I got to seminary, I was like, ah, finally, it's happening. You know, things are are on track. Things are moving ahead. And after seminary, I'm going to find a church. You know, it's just going to be like this perfect fit, you know. And they're going to invite me to be an assistant pastor. And it's just going to be great, right? And so after seminary, uh, we moved to Boston, and I immediately um, found a church, and I got a position there as a one-year part-time intern. Uh, They didn't have a full-time internship position, so I had to go get a job at a hospital part-time. And, you know, again, nothing wrong with that job, but I didn't really like it. But I told myself, it's okay, because I'm doing ministry finally. You know, I'm a part-time intern. It's great. So I tried my best. And at the end of the one-year internship, the church leaders came to me and said, you know, Michael, we like you. (laughs) We see a lot of raw potential in you. But really, you're not what we're looking for. And we're sorry, but we don't have a position here for you. And it was just so crushing, you know. It was just kind of devastating. I was like, what's going on? And so I went to my hospital job, and they were very gracious to bump me up to full-time work. And I went to, Christine and I went to this other church, and we said to them, do you have a position here for me? You know, do you have a need? Like, do you have a, um, maybe I could be an assistant pastor. And they said, well, you know, we don't have a position. We don't even have an internship for you. But tell you what, you can volunteer. You can do ministry. You can lead a small group and do other things. And I said, okay, thank you. Um, And so I did that for two years, working full time at my other job. And then uh, after that, Christina graduated from school. And so we said, let's move back to the Bay Area. You know, all the doors seemed to be closed in Boston. That was like a dead end. 
And so we went back to the Bay Area and we found this church in Berkeley. And it seemed like a really great fit, you know. Um, so I was there for about six months, you know, sort of getting to know the people, really getting involved, really, you know, committing myself. And I went to the church leaders and I said, you know, I, I really love this church. I really find this to be a great fit. Do you have a position here for me? You know, maybe just even an internship um, so that you could eventually transition to being a pastor. And they said to me, Michael, we really like you. We see a lot of raw potential in you. Um, but we don't have anything. Maybe you should look somewhere else. And so I was feeling really low. And I started to look somewhere else. And finally, that's how I got connected to Tommy. And through Tommy, I came to CCCAC. And CCCAC was the very first time I finally became a pastor. You know, I finally got to do full-time ministry. And when it happened, I was 32 years old. And I graduated college when I was 21. So it took me 11 years, 11 years. And it was so, like, agonizing. I remember times when, especially the first three years at Walgreens was really tough. Um, You know, sometimes I would be the manager during the graveyard shift, right? This would be like when the store was open at midnight. And um, the store had a second floor where the warehouse was, which really made it a pain. Because anytime you wanted to restock anything, go up floor, bring it all the way down. So I would go up to the warehouse, you know, late at night, and I would, like, set up this carton of, you know, pineapple juice cans, and those were really great. So I would sit down on it, and I would just cry. (laughs) I would just start to cry for, like, two to three minutes until I was interrupted by something on the speaker, you know, Mr. Chung, can you come to register three? (laughs) So I would, like, wipe my tears, go walk downstairs and address that customer. And it was just so agony. It was so miserable. And I was wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you wasting my time? Why are you leading me up dead ends? And I realized, not fully, but I realized in part that I am a better pastor for what I went through. You know, that God was truly humbling me. And that at least I know this much. I know what it's like to be in a dead-end job. I know what it's like to just be in agony because you're just so frustrated. You're going nowhere in your job. And I think at least that aspect will make me a better pastor. Now, what is the relevance for us in our church plan as Indelible Grace Church? You know, I really want to set our expectations, okay? I really want us to be prepared that in the coming weeks and in the coming months, we're going to run into obstacles. We're going to have troubles. Just because we're doing God's work, and we are, that doesn't mean God is going to make everything smooth. That doesn't mean everything is going to fall into place. We're going to have periods where we're like, why are we going this dead end? Why is God wasting our resources and our potential? And we're going to be so frustrated. But I want us to take heart that through it all, we should trust God. We should lean on God, that we should always be thankful. Because you know why? God is not interested in efficiency. God is interested in our hearts. God is interested in our growing in grace. So in summary, 
God advances the gospel three ways. Through a fight, through us adapting to non-Christians, and in third, through obstacles and dead ends. So that in all things, God receives the glory. And in all things, we might depend on him, we might trust in him. Let me close with this last final comment, okay? If you look all the way down at the end, in verse 9, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia. Now in the vision, the man is urging, pleading with Paul. Some translations say he's begging Paul, come over here, help us, tell us the gospel. We're lost. We don't know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Tell us about Jesus. Tell us about the gospel. And you know what's so amazing about this vision? Is that God is giving Paul a glimpse into the ultimate spiritual reality. And in the ultimate spirituality, you see, Paul is going to go to Macedonia. And when he goes to Macedonia, you know what's going to happen? People are going to resist him. People are going to ignore him. People are going to attack him. But God says, don't you see They desperately need the gospel. Don't you see that on the outside, they seem confident, but they're lost. They need to hear about grace. Do you see your friends in the same way? On the outside, they seem fine. Everything's going okay. They seem self-sufficient, but they are desperately spiritually impoverished. They need to hear about Christ and about the gospel. The Bible tells us that all of us are alienated. That we're like the lost son in the parable. Remember the parable that Jesus told? That we're far away from home because of our sin and rebellion, but that God has provided us a way back through Jesus Christ to be reconciled with the Father. And that is the gospel. And therefore, let me ask you this. Do you have that same vision? Do you dream the dream? Do you see the man from Hayward, (laughs) the man from Castro Valley, from San Leandro, and he's saying to you, come over here. Help us. Tell us the gospel. Tell us about Jesus. Let's pray.